I uh, made a checklist of things that ought to be in a Wheatland sermon or a worship service. We've already covered a couple of those. You need to make some announcement about some event that's happened or will happen and say it will be really good or it was really, really good. We did that with the swim party. You always quote either Dallas Willard or, um, or Eugene Peterson or somebody, and we've already covered that. Uh, you usually tell a joke that doesn't go over really well the first time and you explain it. Um, you have a long introduction that's most of the sermon, and then you go. So, and there's more. I have a longer list, but those are the ones so far. So, um, to listen to a sermon spoken by me is to step in my mind a little bit. I'm so sorry. Uh, because my mind bounces like a ping pong ball that's just been shot out of a cannon all over the place. Uh, it's just the way my mind works. Anything over about three minutes in concentration is just not me. I quickly switch from thing to thing. It's kind of why I like Paul's writings, actually. Uh, he does that at times. Uh, so take what you can get and gain, and anything that is from God uh, is good. Anything from me, just ignore that. Last week, Karen Bartlett showed us a few pictures from their trip to Ephesus. And uh, I thought those were fascinating. They were interesting. They were really great pictures. And uh, they were really, really cool. And since we're in the book of Ephesians, uh, it was nice to have that, to be able to see uh, where some of this happened and her, as her and Rick uh, visited there. And I thought I'd show you a few pictures of a trip that I took as well to South Wichita. Uh, and so, yes, um, some of you have eaten at this fine establishment. El Fagum is really, really good. Uh, on the outside, in fact, the, if you can, I don't know if you can see from the back, but they didn't even change the rent erect sign. They just left it there. This is the good side of the sign. The other side, uh, El Fagon is misspelled. Uh, somebody has rearranged the duct tape in the sign. And uh, when you walk in, it's only cash, and that's, that's duct tape. There's generous amounts of duct tape and, uh, and masking tape uh, everywhere. But when you get inside, the food is really, really good, and it's not very expensive. Um, Elphagon doesn't work real hard to impress you, at least from appearances. Um, however, when you get inside, you find out that the food is really, really good. They have some of the finer tacos in Wichita, Kansas. And there's a decent price if you have cash. And sometimes uh, you have to try to use a little Spanish because the person waiting on you may, may or may not speak English, but it's a really good place. And Elphagon draws a diverse crowd, from doctors and other hospital workers, to road construction workers, to plumbers, electricians, roof, roofers, other craftsmen, to business people, college students, people from all walks of life that I saw last time I was in there. But everybody comes there because they have one thing in common. They enjoy good food. They share a common bond. And to me, this is Wheatland. Now, I think our facility is a little better. I'm glad that Sunnyside gives this to us. So I'm really not talking about this. But as a church, we're really not into well-timed services. We started a little late. We tried for about three months to start on time. And we just dragged it all down. We're back. <laughs> we, um, we're not about appearances. We aren't polished or well-rehearsed at times. But when we come and meet here together, I feel like most people know that you are in a good place. 
And I think even though we come from different walks of life, we come here to be spiritually fed, and I think that happens, and I think it's good, at least on the weeks I'm not preaching. I think we enjoy what we have in common because it's good. When sin enters into the world, atrophy occurs. A number of years ago, I had surgery on this knee. And they put it in a cast from the hip all the way down to the toe and left it immobilized for six weeks. And some of you have experienced this. When they take that cast off, atrophy happens. The leg gets skinny, the muscle is gone, and I couldn't move it. Uh, physical therapist grabbed it and started yanking on it and trying to get it to stretch again. And, and, um, but it just there wasn't much muscle left there. It was just a skinny little white leg and had to be worked on. Atrophy happens quickly, and sin causes that in our spiritual lives. Our world and our lives become fractured because of sin. They become broken. They, we become disoriented. This is the nature of sin, and this is the nature of what it does to a community. So we go to the next slide. Eugene Peterson, check it off the list. What we know about God and what we do for God has a way of getting broken apart in our lives. The moment the organic unity of belief and behavior is damaged in any way, we are incapable of living out the full, of hu the full humanity for which we were created. Paul's letter to the Ephesians joins together what has been torn apart in our sin-wrecked world. And the passage we, that was read earlier, this is what we have today. Because see, sin can wreck the outside, but it can also wreck the inside. And for the Apostle Paul, this call to unity is constant. If you read Paul, and I, for a long time I had very little appreciation for Paul. I didn't like a lot of what he said. I didn't understand it. I had to put it in context. And as I've been able to step back from that and learn the context of where Paul is at and the really dysfunctional cities that he's in, you have Corinth, uh, which would be like our Las Vegas or New Orleans at their worst. You have... Um, you, you have city after city after city that he calls again and again to be better people, to be what they are supposed to be. But they're people that are, weren't Christians before and they're coming to this new life. And often he has to correct and often he has to uh, direct their specific, in, specific thing that's going on within that church. So for him, the call to unity is constant. It is the heartbeat of his letters as I look more and more of him calling for people to be united. And this isn't a unity that's based on coercion or anything like that, but the unity of Christ. Whether it's the church in Philippi when he states, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. And we're going to talk about that word one, because that word to me, and I think in Paul's meaning, has the idea of wholeness and completeness. Uh, one in spirit and purpose, complete in that. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility considers others better than yourselves. And he goes on to talk about the attitude of Christ. Or in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, those two passages, it's an unfortunate break, chapter break. Those two passages should always be read together. 1 Corinthians 12 is about the body of Christ, but 13 is about the unconditional love that needs to accompany that body of Christ. And here he talks about that body and the unconditional love that should unify a very diverse group of people. Paul here and many other places reiterates this idea of oneness 
and like-mindedness. This is what we will see in this passage this evening from the letter to Ephesus as well. During the life of Jesus, we see that he constantly breaks down barriers between people. The gospel, the good news, is at its best when it is a unifying force, allowing us to see the best in each person and what could be possible in the life of each individual. Not the worst. And often as a church, we've called out the worst. But we need, as the church universal, we always need to call out the best. In John 4, he reaches out to a Samaritan woman. It's one of my favorite passages. She's been divorced five times. That means a man left her because she did not have the ability to divorce somebody. And now she's living with a guy. And she's ashamed and she's embarrassed and she's a Samaritan. And Jesus uses uh, his encounter with her to impact a whole group of people. Um, He uses somebody that everybody else would think was nobody. He brought out the very best in her and allowed her to be the one that takes the gift of God to all these other people within her region. And then for those of you who have seen the movie, the movie or the movie series, The Chosen, I don't know how many of you have seen it. I don't like Jesus movies. I have never liked them. I think most of them are boring. I think most of them picture Jesus as somebody that I wouldn't want to be around. Uh, I think, uh, I think it's just, but I think the chosen does it. I think they got it right. Just my opinion, but I think they're. If you haven't seen it, I think they're worth seeing and getting your Bible and going back and, and seeing how they got to where they got. Um, but if you haven't seen it, it does a fantastic job of showing how Jesus brought together people who could not stand each other. The first of the series is basically about how he draws his disciples, his apostles, to follow him. And there's two people that are central characters in in The Chosen. And one is Simon Peter, who is a zealot. And one is Matthew, who is an anti-zealot. They're just opposite ends. You know, Matthew's a tax collector, and the Jews don't like him, and the Romans don't like him. And Peter is over here, and they've portrayed him in a way I really, really like Uh, I just think they they nailed it in a lot of ways. And he is zealous for the Jewish community and the Jewish people. And he can't stand the Romans. So why would you want to to spend any time with a traitor that collects taxes for for the Romans? And I think they do a good job of weaving that story together. And Jesus picks those people to work together. There had to be great tension between these two during their early encounters. In Jesus' world, the word Samaritan becomes the Good Samaritan. I love how Jesus changes names uh, and, and how he does that. We even have Good Samaritan laws now that, that will encourage you to help somebody in their time of need. We have people in a Good Samaritan club that travel around the country and work at camps or children's homes and things like that. That name has been redeemed in a name that was nobody cared for as a Jew. And Jesus redeems it. These things unite people for a common good. I honestly believe after reading the Gospels and Acts that the early church may have well been one of the most diverse groups that has ever existed. Read it. Look at it. You have Ethiopians. You have people uh, from the East, from the Asian countries. You have people from from Europe. You have people from all over Africa and, of course, the Middle East uh, joining together in churches in Acts 2. You have this great group of people that hear things in all their own language, and it's a lot of different languages. And as they go out and as they make these missionary journeys, they keep bringing people in. It was, it was, just, it was amazing. 
um, and something that we certainly could learn from in 2021. And then there's John the Baptist. He came to clear the way or make straight paths for people to see Jesus. It's what was told about him in Isaiah. These are unity words and phrases. Um, and uh, go to the next slide. Uh, this is what I think John the Baptist looked like. Now, in The Chosen, John the Baptist does not look like this. He looks kind of like a crazy guy and a little skinny guy. But I think this is what he looks like. In my mind, this is John the Baptist. He, and sorry, this is not for Nathan. This is not a Tolkien reference. I started to pass this off as a Tolkien reference and realized how horrible that would be um, for some people. And, um, but he came to clear the way. He came to, make, came to make straight paths for people to see Jesus. These are unity words and phrases. Even at the very onset of the church, you hear all these voices, Paul and John the Baptist and Jesus, uh, supreme above all. John the Baptist understood that the making of the kingdom of God would be based on removing barriers and building bridges or building ways for people to meet Jesus. This is not and should not be a watering down of the gospel that loses all meaning in order for everyone to get along. That's not what we're talking about. But rather a unity that points to Jesus and his words and actions as a form of unity and oneness. When I was in college, and it's one of my favorite stories, so indulge me, because I thought it was rather creative. I had three roommates my junior year. Two-bedroom apartment, two guys in each room. And one Saturday night, all three of my roommates had dates. And I was home. And since I didn't have anything to do, I thought, I'll find something to do. And I thought, I wonder what it would be like to rearrange all the furniture in this apartment, every piece, and make a little maze. And then I wonder what it would be like to go and throw the breaker so that no lights worked. <laughs> and as I thought about this, I thought, this is a great idea. So I unscrewed the light bulb on the outside porch. And as uh, I rearranged everything, I waited for roommates to come in. About 11 o'clock, the first roommate comes in. Daryl comes in. And we'd pull pranks on each other all the time. You would always pull on a boot, and there would be a potato in it. This potato just got more and more rotten, but you'd find it different places, your backpack, wherever, whatever it was. Or somebody would tie everybody's shoes together, you know, in really uh, difficult knots, uh, things like that. So there were always these things going on, so I thought, I'm going to get back. So I, went, I sat in my back room and waited as the first roommate came in. Daryl came in. I heard the light switch click a couple of times. I'm back trying not to laugh out loud like I'm not there. And he calls out. Of course, I don't answer. Uh, he doesn't know. I parked my car down the street. He doesn't know that nobody's there. So he just starts walking over to the lamp. And I put a uh, coffee table about three feet in, and he went right over the top of it. It was great. Busted his shins, uh, fell over. And he heard me laughing and he didn't learn from this. He got up and he said, I'll get you, Lofton. And he started running and ran straight into the couch and fell over again. <laughs> you know, and I thought, you know, I hope he doesn't die, but this is really good. And uh, he finally gets back to the room and he's like, I'll get you, Lofton, I'll get you. And I'm like, okay, whatever. But wait, somebody else is coming in. Well, now he's in on it. And this happens two more times. Uh, second, you know, and, and, and that, by the way, two of them are Bible majors, so I wanted to see if they'd cuss. And, um, and so... Um, they, they get in, and uh, the last one comes in, and now the other two are in on the joke. And he comes in really late, so we also rigged his bed, so when he laid in, it would collapse. 
and uh, so he came in and tripped over, fell over everything. I mean, we, you know, with their help, even more so. And he finally lays down in bed and says, I'm going to get you all in the morning. Because he still can't see. The lights still don't come on. He says, I'm going to get you in the morning. And then he laid on his bed and it collapsed. And it was great. <laughs> but you know, I think sometimes my life is like that. Sometimes I put obstacles in the path of people. They both keep unity from happening and keep from people from knowing Christ or knowing Christ better. I make it difficult. And I have to join in with John the Baptist and say, I am here to make clear paths. I'm here to fulfill what is said in Isaiah about me, to make it easy for people to come to the Lord, to make straight paths for people. And so I want us to do that. I think that's part of unity. Unity happens not only inside the church. Unity happens outside the church as we draw people in. Oneness, wholeness, when it's a healthy and good environment that is Christ-like. When my life is an obstacle to both people inside and outside the church, that's an issue. But instead, maybe we need to be the tree for others. Next slide, please. I saw this in a leadership magazine a number of years ago, and it stuck with me. Luke 19, a very rich man that was probably despised by most people because he was a chief tax collector named Zacchaeus, climbed a sycamore fig tree in order to see Jesus. If you've seen a sycamore fig tree, they're easy to climb. Low branches, a lot of big branches, easy to climb. He climbed the tree because he was short and he wanted to see Jesus. And we need to be the tree. One way that we show unity within the church is that we lift people up, both inside and outside the church, individually and as a community, so that others can be lifted up to see Jesus. So a question I ask this week is, how can I be the tree? Unity lifts up. It is not made by tearing down. And so how can I this week be the tree, be the one that lifts people up because I'm not Jesus after all. I am a failed human being. I am sinful. And church is at its best when it admits his sin and tries to do better and says, yeah, I'm not the answer, but we're going to lift you up to who, who is the answer. So let us one more time read our passage for the evening. And notice as we read the words or phrases that are highlighted. And I think it's worth reading again. And so I want to do this. And I may stop in just a few things here. I, therefore, Paul speaking, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. I love those three words, that, 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 that's sincere to me, genuineness. Bearing with one another in love. And I want to stop there. Bearing with one another in love. I have to remind myself of all the time because sometimes I'm the person other people have to bear with. And I think at times we have to have difficult people in church. They may help us because they may be teaching us how to bear. And at times I may be teaching you how to bear with one another. Sometimes we do this. There was a man that taught at Trinity Academy that I taught with a number of years ago, and I could not stand him. I'll just be real honest. He was a rule guy. He, um, he, he loved rules, and he was adamant about rules, about rules for everything. 
and he loved his rules. And if you broke a rule, you knew it as a student. If he disagreed with you, he'd tell you. And I just didn't get along with him at all. Student left a backpack in the hallway. He would grab it and run to his room, and they had to pay a quarter to get it back because it was in the hallway where it wasn't supposed to be. And uh, we butted heads because he liked rules, and I liked to break them. And um, I really didn't like him, but I get to school early. And one morning, he got to school early as well. I get there about 6.30, and about 6.45, he came in, and I asked him. I said, hey, why are you here so early? And he told me, well, I have a friend that uh, got out of jail, he's going through drug rehab, and he got a job at one of the aircraft companies. And he's living in one of my houses. He owns several houses around his house. And he said, I need to get him to work every day. And so I drop him off and I come here and then I leave right after school and I pick him up. And I'm like, oh. Well, come to find out that he owned about four or five rental properties all around his house, four of which were owned by elder ladies. And he mowed all the yards for all of them. He took care of all the repairs. He was a really handy person. Uh, he had this young man living there. Nobody really was aware of all this. He did all this just quietly. And all of a sudden, I have an appreciation for him, and we became better friends. I just realized, oh, wait, maybe I'm not bearing with him. Maybe he's bearing with me. And so I want to be mindful of that. So bear with one another in love because it's a way to come to understanding, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Holy Spirit. Again, notice these words, in the bond of peace. I like that When I like the idea of bond, something holding strong. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all. Can you hear this, this language of wholeness in each of those? Who is above all and through all and in all, but each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it is said, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to his people. When it says he ascended, what does it mean? But he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is the same one who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things in heaven on earth, bringing unity in both of those places and bringing them together. The gifts he gave were those were some were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up. If it's not building up, it's not unity. If it's tearing down, it's disunity. Building up the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity to the measure of full stature of Christ. You're not hearing rules there. You're hearing relationship of oneness with Christ and with each other. We must no longer be children tossed into and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every ligament from which it is equipped as each part is working properly. Promotes the body growth in building itself up in love. Because unity is always a building process, not a tearing down. There's way too much to possibly cover in this passage this evening. It's rich and it's layered. And I think that after reading it and 
uh, after reading what Eugene Peterson said about it uh, in his book, I'm going to spend a lot more time here, uh, some other time. But however, I hope we can come away with a call to oneness in a world that is fractured and not knit together, and that the church can be that place where oneness can be found. Biblical unity is not something that is forged, forced, it is built. If it's forced, it's coercion. And it's not built on shame or conformity. The Pharisees, both in old times and our current world, have the market of judgment, coercion, and manipulation already cornered. In any group, a certain amount of disagreement is healthy and expected. I think we do that well here at Wheatland. Some of you have grown up or been part of a group that was controlling and manipulative, creating a forced unity that was based on fear and exclusion from the group. But Paul calls us to a unity that is different. And we need to remember this. Where there are people, there is poop. It's just the reality, right, of who we are. We are, we are that way. We, we create things that aren't always good. Uh, Paul has to deal with this with every single church in some way. And it's just the reality of our world and, and with each of us. We live in a world now that thrives on anger and outrage. Talk shows, reality TV, and cable news are little more than disguises for conflict. As we look on getting a dopamine rush from the chaos while we voyeuristically watch, taking sides and rooting for those we share ideas or agree with, or getting angry with those we don't agree with. Social media allows our voices to be amplified and we can be guilty of as Roger Scruton calls it, the throwing of electric stones. And we hide behind the distance that a computer screen or phone allows us to maintain from other people. The anonymity that comments on a news story or opinion piece allow many of us to say things that we might not say face to face with another human being in our presence. Anger and rage in our culture have become a commodity. And when you have a commodity, you can sell it. You can make money by getting people riled up and plugging into their anger. You can separate people quickly. You can destroy unity. And like any habit, our minds, spirit, and bodies can feed on it. And like most drugs, we never get the outcome we are hoping for. Sin and bad habits have ever-increasing need and ever-diminishing returns. A paraphrase of C.S. Lewis. And certainly, that divisiveness and anger is part of that. There are certainly things we should be angry about. However, it is incumbent on us to be productively angry and draw people into the kingdom rather than pushing them further away. So if our anger does not accomplish that, then we're in trouble. Paul offers us an alternative in this passage, a place where humility, gentleness, and patience exist the way church should be. There's the clock right there. That's great. Okay, we're in good shape. I, in Churches of Christ, it's right in the middle because order was really important. And, and yeah. So, anyway, it's, it's slightly at the side here. So, I like the fact that at Wheatland, the culmination of the worship service each week is communion. A table which every person can arrive and share at a common table. A table that points to the unifying person of Jesus Christ. It is here that hopefully we can set aside our differences and share in the oneness of Christ. I also like that before communion, we recite the prayer of confession, and we do it together. And I like that the confession uses the word we instead of I. 
So if we go to the next side, notice the use of we, our, and us in what we recite. And for this time, we'll say this in a little bit, but listen to the words. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us, and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And then the response, of course, Almighty God, have mercy on us. Forgive us all our sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen us in all goodness. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep us in eternal life. Amen. It is so. I like that. My sin has an impact on others. Not just on me. It affects you. It is not isolated to myself. Bob Mueller mentioned the failings of Ravi Zacharias and other ministers a few weeks ago. Their sin impacts all of us. think we can't get away from that. And my sin has an impact on you. Sin has a corporate effect. And I know there's time for personal uh, reflection on our sin and forgiveness, but I think it's good that we do this together. We all sin and we all need to confess. Most importantly, this confession can free us from our hypocrisy and judgment of others. It is a unifying aspect of community to see forgiveness so that we can be one. It drives away pride and arrogance. By the way, these are the two sins that Jesus seems to condemn most often. In a sense, we also take responsibility for each other in our confession of sin. And this may seem like it's jumping around, but I don't think it is. There's something that I do and that Buffy does with me every week on Thursday nights downtown. In an odd way, it helps me at least seek the common good. The next slide here. He's already there. Okay. For the last few months on Thursday nights, Buffy and I go downtown to meet some volunteers at this shower trailer. It's called Shower Up. There's people from other churches, people that I probably don't agree with in all their views, and I'm sure they don't agree with all mine, but I know that they're there to serve, and I know that they love Jesus. I first went to help other people, those poor people who didn't have a home and needed my help. I go out of a certain obligation to help others, feeling like I ought to give back in some way. But honestly, I don't always enjoy going at times. In Kansas, it's either too hot, or it's too cold, or it's too windy. Some people deal with mental illness or substance abuse, and some conversations can be awkward, long, or uncomfortable while people are waiting for showers. But I need these people in my life. They are the ones that remind me that we all have the divine spark the image of God. Each of those people have a name. They have emotions and feelings. Some are funny. Some are deep. Some work hard. Some are addicted. But many show me grace. Each person wants to be seen and they want to be known. And they want to be clean. I have a lot more in common with each than sometimes I want to admit. But I'm certainly not better than them. In fact, these people humble me and allow me to feebly attempt to do, to be somewhat like Jesus to each of them. Honestly, they show me Jesus more often than I show it to them. Buffy often does the hard stuff. She sits in the sun and guards bikes or backpacks while people are in showers because they're afraid they'll lose their possessions. She cleans the nastiest showers 
Um, so the next image bearer that steps in the shower can have the dignity of a clean space. She talks of homeless and, and hears some of their stories. Another night even communicated with a man who could not hear or speak so that he could get a shower. Her life reminds me to be a better person as well as the people I work with each day. And I think this is unity as well, even though it's not inside a church building. It's the reminder that we're all in this together. That what we learn about and what we talk about in church goes out into the streets. And I know they're only clean for a little while. I know that what we do maybe doesn't matter that much. And maybe it's just there for God to say, Tim, learn your lesson. But ultimately, I know this about my own life when it comes to unity. When I serve others, I complain less. When I complain less, I'm more unified with others. When I complain less, I tend to be less resentful of others. When I am less resentful of others, unity and common ground are easier to find. When I worship with others and the focus is on Christ, I am in the process of becoming a less contentious person who is willing to offer a little more grace to others. When I confess my sins corporately with each of you, I become more and more aware of my sin, not in a way that it feels guilty, but rather as a release from that sin, both for myself and the action of the burden of that sin and for others. When I get to take communion with each of you, I am reminded of the oneness and unity that we share because of the commonality of Christ and his church. And when I read the passage in Ephesians, I am reminded of the healthy unity that we share together. And I get to share that with you. I get to be blessed by my relationship with Jake. I get to be blessed with my relationship with Candy. I get to be blessed because of Son and Sinneret and their faithfulness and their prayers. Anybody named Mike in the audience is just all great people. I'm getting into Richard. I could go on and just look down this list of people here and say, man, these are fantastic, great people that I get to rub shoulders with and make me better. And that's who I want to spend time with. May we, as followers of Christ, model the oneness and unity and peace that a fractured world so desperately needs. May we be the place of respite from the attacks, the name-calling, and the hatred that infuses so much of our culture. And may our unity be based on the refining of our hearts, the repentance of our sins that causes fractures and wounds, and by the grace extended to each of us because of our Savior's death and resurrection. Grace and peace to you all as we confess our sins and as we meet together at the table of our Lord.